Jonah chapter number three. We're going to pick it up at verse number four. We will conclude chapter three today. Next week we will not be in Jonah, but we'll have two more weeks after that. So really through the month of September we'll be in Jonah. But let's look at verse number four. This is going to be Jonah giving the word of the Lord to these people at Nineveh. And then verse number five is going to give us a synopsis of what happens in Nineveh. Verse number six through nine is going to unpack that synopsis, and it's going to unfold exactly how this happened. And the number 10 is the result of all of it. So look at verse number four. Jonah began to enter into the city a day's journey, and he cried and said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. So the people of Nineveh, here's what happened. They believe God proclaimed a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them even to the least of them. So how exactly did this happen? Verse number six is going to tell us. For the word came into the king of Nineveh and he rose from his throne. He laid his robe from him. He covered him with sackcloth and satin ashes. And he caused it to be proclaimed and published through Nineveh by decree of the king and his nobles saying, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed nor drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily unto God. Yea, let them turn everyone from his evil way and from the violence that is in their hands. Who can tell if God will turn and repent and turn away his fierce anger that we perish not? Verse number 10, the result of this, and God saw their works, but they turned from their evil way and God repented of the evil that he had said that he would do unto them and he did it not. What's happening here in Jonah chapter number three is arguably the greatest day in Assyrian history. There were a lot of great days for Assyria, days of conquest, days of celebration, days of dedicating temples, but this is arguably the greatest day that Assyria has ever seen in their national history. And what's happening on this day is that God is going to do spiritual surgery on these people's hearts. And I want us this morning after Andy sings to begin to understand a little bit of how God does spiritual surgery on these people's hearts and how God does spiritual surgery likewise on your heart and on my heart and what we can take away from that. I'm curious to know by raise of hands this morning, how many of you have ever had a surgery? Who's had a surgery in the room? All right, most of us have had a surgery. Who has not had a surgery? You're either young or have good genes. There was like two people in the early service that have had a surgery. We were all decrepit. But uh, I'm just kidding. Don't tell them I said that. <laughs> I've had four surgeries, so I'm, I'm, I'm kind of hurt myself. I've had two on, my, uh, two on my chest just by nature of genetics and how it was born. I shouldn't have said decrepit. That was bad. Forgive me. <laughs> <clears throat> Strike that from the audio. Don't put that online. <laughs> two on my chest. I had one on my ear. caught an elbow during a tug-of-tube game as a teenager. That was a great fun, and the eardrum just kind of poop there it went. And uh, when I get my hair cut, you can see a little scar that took some... Uh, material from my scalp and patched my ear with it. One on my ACL uh, as an adult playing basketball and there went that ligament. And so I've, I've had a few. Surgeries are, they're interesting uh, processes to go through. At, at their core, what is surgery? It's, it's temporary pain, it's temporary suffering meant to bring about some long-term health. And it's funny because the first rule of medicine is do no harm. But we allow our surgeons to cut people and to amputate limbs and to produce scars. You know, how do those go hand in hand? Do no harm and you're going to, you know, carve people up. Well, they go hand in hand because that's ultimately helping someone. 
It's, it's temporary pain, and it does hurt, and it's, it's not fun to go through. But ultimately, in the long run, it's designed to produce health. It's designed to be for the benefit of the individual. And spiritual surgery on our hearts via the Spirit of God and the Word of God is really no different than a physical surgery. It is temporarily discomforting. It is not fun. Frankly, it's not even fun to talk about. But it is designed to produce long-term health and long-term benefit in our lives. And what we'll find here in Jonah 3 is that God is doing spiritual surgery on the people of Nineveh, on their hearts. And this is in an effort to produce some spiritual health in their lives. And I want us to see the components that are mixed together here to produce a spiritual surgery on these people. There are at least four that I can see in Jonah chapter 3 that make up God doing spiritual surgery on these people. So I want us to look at them first as you see illumination. This is produced by Jonah walking into the city. And verse number four tells us that he gives them the message True to the call, Jonah tells them what God asked him to say. He says in verse number four, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. So the sand glass of 40 days is tipped over. The divine countdown has begun. And now Nineveh, know the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord says 40 days and you're going to be overthrown. That There's impending judgment. There's impending doom that awaits you. And you need to know this. Now, this is where God wanted Jonah to get there, to give them this message because these people need to be illuminated. God is going to use these very short words. It's really five Hebrew words if you look at it. And he's going to use this message to shine a spotlight on the blackened souls of these people and help them to understand their sin and the gravity of their sin. He's going to illuminate the people of Nineveh that you are not on good terms with God you do not have right standing with him. He is displeased with your actions and judgment is headed your way because of what you're doing. And this is, this produces inside of these people actually a belief. Verse number five says that they believe God. They hear the word and all of a sudden their hearts are illuminated as to the problem that they have. And this is this is why giving people the word of God and the truth of God is so vitally important. We touched on this last week, so I won't belabor it, but this is why you giving people the Bible, you giving them the word of God, you speaking truth into their lives is so important because you're, it's going to illuminate them. It's going to shine a light on the problem. You walking a good walk, you having a good life, them seeing your good works so that they may glorify your Father is fantastic. It's biblical. It's Christian. You should do it. But it's not a substitute for the Word of God. You have to give people the Word of God. Without that, it's like having a conversation with a mime. I don't know if you ever had to, you know, try to make out what a mime is saying. Sometimes it's productive and you can tell what they're saying, sometimes not. But you never have a great conversation. You never learn too much from that conversation. Why? Because they're not using any words. You have to walk the walk, but you also have to give people the word of God because it illuminates hearts, it illuminates minds, it shows people where the problem really lies. This is why the devil works so hard to get you out of the word of God and to get you out of church. How many of you can attest to the fact that it's tougher to get up on Sunday morning than any other morning? Anyone else that way, right? Whoever wrote easy like Sunday morning was lying. Or they weren't a Christian, one or the other. Apparently that was Lionel Richie. I didn't know that until the first service someone told me. It just Lionel Richie. So now you know. <laughs> it's a true story. But that's not true, easy like Sunday morning. Some of you parents, you know it with your kids. 
you can get them up at 6.30, you know, to get ready for the bus and get ready for school and all the rest of it. Sunday morning, you have to get them up 8.30, but somehow it's tougher on Sunday morning. You on, on the school mornings, you have to pack the lunch and the backpack, make sure they have the homework, da 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 Sunday morning, it's like, you know, have your pocket-sized Bible. That's it. But it's easier on the school mornings than Sunday mornings many times. It's tougher for you to get up and, and get into the routine. Why is that? Is it just because it's the weekend? Is it just because it's the day off? I would contend not. I think that there's something spiritual going on there. The devil knows that when you sit under the word of God and you hear the preaching of God's word, that your heart is illuminated and you are able to behold your face as in a glass. You're able to see the problems. You're able to see the discrepancies. You're able to see your shortcomings. You're able to see your sin. So he prevents you and wants to prevent you from doing that. This is why getting into the habit of reading your Bible and staying in that habit is extremely difficult. If you think about it, it shouldn't be. You know, cognitively, you could just think, I mean, it's going to take me 15, 20 minutes. Maybe you go longer than that, half hour, hour, great. But hey, 15 or 20 minutes to sit down and read my Bible. Many of you, you have the habit, you can go an hour and 15 minutes, an hour and 20 minutes, scrolling through your Facebook feed to keep up with that every day. Why can't we spend 15 or 20 minutes in the Word of God? Well, it's more than just forming a habit loop. It's more than just exerting willpower to do this. There's something spiritual there. There's something spiritual there because when you hear the Word of God, when you're under the Word of God, when you're reading a book that clearly explains the Word of God, when you are reading the Bible for yourself, that illuminates your heart. That is part of spiritual surgery that happens. And these people, the first step, the first process is Jonah comes and says, thus saith the Lord, here's the word of God for you. And that begins this domino effect, that begins this surgical process on their hearts to open them up. I have a friend of a friend. My friend is older than I am and his friend is older than he is. So this was actually back in the 70s or 80s. But this guy was an unsaved man who was driving, I don't know where he was driving, but someone on the side of the road had a Bible verse on a poster board that they were holding up. He doesn't know what the verse was. All he knows is that the verse started with the words, verily, verily. So you know, if you know John's gospel, he's the only one that does that. So it was from John somewhere, but he didn't know. He was an unsaved man. He saw the words, verily, verily. Same word two times. And he could not get that word out of his head. And for a period of days and weeks, that just began to echo. And it's verily, what does that mean? Verily, 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 verily. So he began to look it up. And his searching for what does verily, verily mean inevitably led him to John's gospel, led him to reading several different, a dozen or so verses that begin with those words. And he began to read verses like, verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me hath everlasting life. And this man reached a point of conversion and faith in Jesus Christ because he saw one word just repeated two times, verily, verily, on the side of the road, and that was used to illuminate his heart and bring him to a point where he opened the word of God and became a Christian. So don't ever underestimate what the word of God can do for people. The word of God is powerful, and it's used, it's alive, it quickens people, it's used to shine a light on people and to show you and me and others where we really stand. So part of this process that's happening in Nineveh is illumination from the word of God as Jonah walks in and just says, here's the word of the Lord. 40 days, you're going to be overthrown. Secondly, there's conviction that happens. These people hear the word of God, they're illuminated, but then they are convicted. Now, conviction actually has a lot of different definitions. We use it in three or four different ways in our English language. But when conviction happens in a court of law, that is when a judge declares a person guilty of an offense. 
Now, when conviction happens in your heart, that is when God, the judge of the earth, declares you guilty, declares your sin wrong, and you become convinced that he's right. When he declares you guilty and you become convinced that he's right, conviction then is happening in your heart. And he uses that as a tool to bring about change. Now, I want you to see that this does happen in the people of Nineveh. Five gives us a synopsis. Six through nine unpacks it. But notice verse number eight specifically. Verse number eight, the king declares, let every man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Cry mightily unto God, yea, let them turn everyone from his evil way and from the violence that's in their hands. So don't miss the back half of that verse. Let's turn from our evil way. So that's a way of just kind of putting all the sin in a big ball and throwing it forward. But then he specifically mentions one sin. Let us turn from the violence that's in our hands. Now, if you know anything about the people of Assyria and the people of Nineveh, you know that their number one atrocity was that they were violent people. These people were extremely treacherous and extremely violent. As you study Assyrian history, it is, it's frankly amazing just to see what their military tactics were and what they're known for. And it's, it's amazing to study any of those. You can look at Greeks or Romans or Babylon, any of them, but Assyria is no different. They actually had a community, an intelligence community of spies that they used way back when, you know, 700 B.C., 800 B.C., they had an intelligence community. And history bears that out, but the Bible even bears that out. You can see in 2 Kings that there's a group, uh, there's a Syrian uh, group or pod that goes to King Hezekiah, the Hebrew king of Judah and Jerusalem. And they begin to have this conversation with Hezekiah to try to manipulate, it, to, to manipulate him into surrender. And when they speak with him, it's apparent from the text that they have inside information. They know that Hezekiah is plotting with Pharaoh of Egypt. They know what Hezekiah's religious plans are, and they begin to spell those out, and they begin to tell Hezekiah and put doubt in his mind that if you actually do that, you're going to displease your God. You shouldn't do that. But it's apparent that these people have inside information. They, they're known for a lot of things militarily, but the overarching principle that they're known for, and the number one atrocity that they have is this. They are violent, bloody people. These people are cutthroats. They are pit bulls. They are organized savages. They were known for being able to fillet a person and keep them alive longer than anyone else. Like you do not mess with the Assyrians. You do not rebel against them. These are people that are violent, and this is wrong. But the funny thing about it is that this violence has actually been a tool that has served them well. Just from a, from a conquering standpoint, it's been effective in ruling. They've been able to take over vast amounts of territory and virtually become the second world power because of their violence. And the king of Nineveh says we should turn from our evil way and specifically the number one thing we're known for, the number one tool in our hands that served us well to conquer other people. Yeah, that, that violence that's in our hands, let's turn from it. Let's get away from it. What's happening here? God is convicting these people of their wrongdoing. Jonah never specifically, best we know, mentions violence, mentions this specific sin. But this king's heart is convicted to a point where he says, this is wrong. If you look at the book of Nahum, Nahum is a prophet who prophesies about 100 years after Jonah. And the people of Nineveh, according to Jonah, do repent. They turn to the Lord and God spares them. But give that a couple generational cycles, 
and they're back to where they were. They're violent people. They are not living for the Lord by any stretch of the imagination. And Nahum steps on the scene, and he prophesies not in Nineveh, but away from Nineveh. He prophesies at them that you are going to be overthrown, no ifs, ands, or buts. And Nahum, via the word of God, calls Nineveh a bloody city. He says at the end of the book that you're going to be overthrown and all the people of the earth are going to rejoice and they're going to clap their hands and they're going to celebrate that you die because these people were so violent, no one liked them. Everyone wanted their downfall. They were the villain of the world. So these people reach a point through the illumination of God's word coming to them, they reach a point of spiritual conviction and they're convicted of their sin. Now, your sin may not be that I have violence in my hands and I just struggle with violence. Your sin may be your alcohol abuse. Your sin may be drugs. Your sin may be fornication. Your sin may be pride. Your sin may be a lot of different things. But whatever it is, the word of God is designed to illuminate your heart and to show you that that's wrong. That that's not okay. That God says that that is, that is atrocious to him. And you reach a point where I am convinced that God and his word are right, and I surrender to that, and I become convicted in my heart. That is, that's, this process of illumination from the word of God and conviction from the spirit of God is uncomfortable, it's painful, but it's beautiful. It's part of the tool in God's hand as he begins to do surgery on your heart. Now, it's uncomfortable and painful because you're being shown where you're wrong and you're being changed. And many times, even other people see where you were wrong. But it's beautiful because it's God in his mercy and in his grace pursuing you, letting you know that he's after you, letting you know that he wants to change you, that he wants to shape you, that he wants to mold you, that he wants what's best for you spiritually long term. So it's beautiful. And the implications of conviction in the life of a Christian are profound. So the implication of conviction, number one, is that this should be something through the Word of God that does happen in your life on a, on a consistent basis. So what that means is, as you open the Word of God for yourself and you read it for yourself, if nothing ever rubs you the wrong way, if nef- nothing ever confronts you, if nothing ever changes you, then there's a problem there with how you're reading the Word of God. It means that if you come to church on a consistent basis and you never hear something that convicts you or gets after you or tells you that you're wrong, there's a problem with that. You know, we have much of evangelicalism, and I use that term loosely. Much of evangelicalism would love to go to churches that, well, I come and I'm there and maybe we worship, but really it's just an organized pep rally. And this, this sermon is just, you know, a little shot in the arm to encourage me through my day. And I'm not saying that every sermon needs to rain fire and brimstone on your head. That's not what I'm saying. And if it does rain it on your head, whoever is giving that sermon should be given it in love as well, not as a, a toxic, violent, just spewing forth madness. But you should have sermons that come your way that convict you, that change you, that alter you, that, that show you where you're wrong. That's part of the Word of God. True sermons were there, open up the word of God, looking at what it says and saying in an unadulterated, unchanged way, this is what the text says, so let's talk about that. 
Now, it's not talking about any less than that. So if sermons are, let's read a verse, close your Bible, and let's just jump ship and talk about whatever we want to talk about, that's trash. If a sermon takes a text and begins to elaborate more than the text is saying, that's also trash. A true sermon is, let's open the Word of God. Let's let it illuminate our hearts. Let's, let, let's see what it says. Let's talk about what it says. Honestly, I have no desire to talk about conviction and spiritual. So it's not a fun topic. None of you are going to have smiles on your face this morning. But Jonah 3 says it. And we're working through the book of Jonah. So we're going to talk about what the word of God says and trust that the word of God will do its work and will use its power to change you. So conviction is something that should happen via the pulpit, via our intake of what we're reading in Scripture, even in other Christian books. Conviction is also something that's necessary just for your Christian walk. And sometimes we don't realize this. Maybe even sometimes we do a bad job of giving people the gospel and helping them to understand that this is going to be part of your Christian life. You know, most people, when they get saved, they get saved on the basis of, I have sinned, I'm wrong, I'm convicted of that, I repent of that, but I'm going to inherit eternal life, I'm going to get heaven, there's going to be joy, there's going to be the fruit of the Spirit, love, it'll be fantastic. That's true. But what gets you to that point? The, the conviction and the repentance and the faith and the illumination of the Word of God that happens to salvation, that happens over and over and over again to get you to a point of joy to get you to a point of spiritual maturity. Ephesians 2, we're his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works. That sounds great, right? Sign me up for that. That sounds fantastic. What's that mean, though? It means that you are the block of wood that God is whittling on and God is carving on and God is removing the things from your life that don't need to be there, and he is working you so that you can go do good works. That means inherent in that verse is that God is shaping me and God is carving away things out of my life on a continual basis and he's doing spiritual surgery on me on a continual basis and that's painful. What does John say? John says that we are to bear fruit, we're to bear more fruit, we're to bear much fruit. And John tells us how that happens, which bearing fruit, we're, sign me up for that. I want to do that as a Christian. I want to I be a fruitful Christian, Right? But what does John say is used to bring us to a point to where we're, bring, we're bearing more fruit? He prunes us, is what he says. God begins to cut away things from your life that are unnecessary. God begins to cut things out of your life that are sinful and that are wrong. And can I tell you, that's painful. That's uncomfortable. I don't feel good. But God in his love and his mercy does that and convicts you and changes you and does his best to use his word to get you to a point where you can bear more fruit, where you can give good works. What does Psalm 51 say? David is a man who's in his sin. God uses Nathan the prophet, a man of God, to come and confront David and convict him. Then the Spirit of God begins to work on, J on David. And David says in Psalm 51, as he turns to the Lord, as he's convicted, he repents of his sin, he turns to the Lord and he says, let me hear joy and gladness that the bones that thou hast broken may rejoice. God breaks bones. Not literally. It's a metaphor. God's crushing me, is what David says. He's doing this so that I may rejoice. That's, part, that's, that's the Christian walk. There's a pruning. There's a shaping. 
There's a carving away. There's even, I feel like I'm being crushed at times. But that is designed to bring you to good works. That's designed to help you bear more fruit. That's designed to help you rejoice. It's designed that the fruit of the Spirit would come forth in your life. So this process, and especially if you're, new to the, if you're new to the Christian faith, that you have just recently reached a point where you put your faith in Jesus Christ, it's not a bait and switch to say, hey, repent of your sin, turn to God, and then it's all going to be uh, roses and petals. That's, that's not the message of Christianity. There is joy. There's gladness. It's the best life that you could ever live. But along the way, along that journey, is spiritual surgery that God does in your heart, that he illuminates you with his word. He begins to convict your heart, and that begins to lead to what the Ninevites lead to, and that's spiritual mourning. Look at verse number five. So the people of Nineveh believed God, and what did they do? They proclaimed a fast. They put on sackcloth from the greatest of them, even to the least of them. Greatest to least means greatest to least. There is no, there's no social classes anymore. Everybody. Verse number six. For the word came unto the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne and laid his robe from him, and he covered him with sackcloth, and he sat in ashes. He caused it to be proclaimed and published through Nineveh by decree of the king and his nobles, saying, Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed nor drink water. But let every man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily unto God. What are they doing here? They're entering a stage of spiritual mourning that naturally we think much of ourselves and little of our sin. But God is bringing them to a point where they're beginning to think much of their sin and little of themselves. Through conviction, he's bringing them to a point of mourning over their sin that they are beginning to see for the first time what their sin really is. And the number one ingredient in this spiritual mourning is humility. They are people that are abasing themselves and becoming humble before an almighty God. Now, this says that the king of Nineveh did this. Side note is that the king of Nineveh doesn't necessarily mean the king of Assyria. I'm not going to get too far in the weeds on that, but during this time frame, there were provincial rulers who were taking the title of king, claiming victory for the military battles. We don't honestly know if this is the king of Assyria or the king of Nineveh, a different guy, and just a regional uh, revival that takes place. But regardless, this is a king who has a, a throne and a robe, things that he's entitled to, and he gives up his entitlements. He gives up what he feels he has a right to. And he begins to humble himself. This is what Isaiah prophesies of Babylon and says that he's going to humble Babylon. And part of that humbling is that he's going to take them from their throne and have them sit in the dust. That God is going to humble you. Here is the king of Nineveh humbling himself, abasing himself and saying, I see the wrongdoing of my sin and I am going to now sit in sackcloth and ashes and I'm going to begin to fast. So, so what's happening here? Well, sackcloth and ashes, it's a way of tangibly, physically showing in the flesh what's happening in the soul. It's a way for these people to tangibly show I am finally feeling the discomfort of my sin. I am finally bothered by this. I have finally reached a point where I just, I am not comfortable to do this any longer. They begin to fast. They begin to give up a want or a need for a greater spiritual need. They begin to, and the purpose of that is to hone in on the inside 
to look at the soul and to become soul reflective. The purpose of this is to say, I feel uncomfortable in my sin. I'm going to be soul reflective. I'm going to focus on what God is doing in my heart. And this spiritual mourning, this sorrow, is part of the process of spiritual surgery that God's doing on them to bring them to a place of rejoicing, to a place of spiritual victory in their lives. Now, this is, some, this is not unique to Nineveh. Don't think that this happened in the Old Testament. Now we have Jesus. There's no condemnation, so there's never any spiritual mourning. You do not do penitence, so you don't earn right standing with God because of your fast. It's not, I did wrong, so let me get good standing with God once again to fast. But there is a, I did wrong, and I want to be reflective. I want to show that I'm uncomfortable, so I may fast over that. This is what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians. If you know about the Corinthian letters, there's first and second. First Corinthians is a letter from Paul the Apostle to the church at Corinth. And it's a slap in the face over and over and over again. The whole book. The whole book is you are wrong, you are sinful. It, it's, you look at that church and that letter and you're like, how do you even call yourselves a church? I mean, they're just a mess. And Paul, he gives them the business. He tells them, here's what's happening. Second Corinthians Paul writes to them and tells them, look, I'm not sad that I slapped you upside your face. Now, he didn't say those words. I'm inserting modern-day vernacular. I'm not sad that I slapped you upside your face. I'm happy because it made you sad and it made you sorrowful, and that sorrow produced godliness inside of you, so I'm thankful that I did it. In case you think I'm lying, I'll read what the Scripture actually says. 2 Corinthians 7, verse 9. Now, I rejoice... Not that you were made sorry, but that you sorrowed to repentance. For ye were made sorry after a godly manner, that ye might receive damage by us in nothing. For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. For behold, this selfsame thing, ye sorrowed after a godly sort. What carefulness it wrought in you, yea, what clearing of yourselves. Yea, what indignation, yea, what fear, yea, what vehement desire, yea, what zeal, yea, what revenge. In all things you have approved yourselves to be clear in this matter. What's Paul saying? I'm thankful that there was a spiritual mourning. I'm thankful you were sorrowful because that worked in you to bring you to a point of repentance. I'm thankful that that began to work in you and bring about zeal and a desire for righteousness and you began to actually change and make yourself clear of these charges, no longer be guilty of this sin, but you changed. So God is using in the hearts of men of the same thing he uses in our hearts. He illuminates us with his word. He convicts us. And we reach a point where we become convinced that yes, he's right. There's a bit of spiritual mourning that takes place that I, I feel the weight of my sin and I'm uncomfortable in that. And sometimes that's five minutes, sometimes that's five days. But I feel uncomfortable in that. And then ultimately, it leads to the real end goal. And that's repentance and faith. And this is precisely what Paul just said in 2 Corinthians, that this is all designed to produce in you as a Christian repentance and faith. This is designed to bring about a change of behavior. It's designed that you actually look and say, you know what, I do agree with God and I feel bad about it, but I'm just not going to leave it there. I'm actually going to change my course of action. 
I'm actually going to, with God's gracious aid and his help, because I can't do it on my own, I'm going to my best to do something different here. And by faith, faith in Jesus Christ and what he's done for me, I'm going to put my faith in him and repent. And this is what the people of Nineveh do. Verse number five tells us they believe God. Some have looked at that and said, well, did they really believe God? Did they, did they get saved? Did they turn to Jehovah? I would say yes. The Bible says in Romans that Abraham believed God. It was counted to him for righteousness. So I see no reason why these people don't believe God just the same. They believe God. They look, look at verse number nine. It says, here's the end result of their spiritual mourning. Who can tell if God will turn and repent? Turn away his fierce anger that we perish not. They say, who knows? God may spare us. They begin to exude some faith in an almighty God that he may in mercy and grace, and they don't really know much about this God, but they know I'm wrong, I'm going to repent, and I'm going to anchor my faith to him. That's the only hope that we have. Maybe he'll spare us. Maybe he will save us. When you, this process is so essential because when you whether you're unsaved and you reach a point of salvation, whether you're a Christian and you're just living in your sin, anytime you're living in your sin, you are imprisoning yourself away from the population of God's blessing. You're incarcerated. And spiritual surgery and conviction to bring you to repentance and faith is designed to release you from your imprisonment it's designed to get you out of that cell, and the gospel is meant to begin to rehabilitate you and bring you from spiritual death to spiritual life, to bring you from spiritual immaturity to spiritual maturity. But that process of conviction and God carving your heart up a little bit happens over and over and over again to try to produce godly change in you. And at this point in the story, the Ninevites are meant to be a bold contrast to Jonah, but they're meant to be a bold contrast to you. Think about the Ninevites. They have very little word from God. They got five words from a lunatic prophet, frankly. They have five words, very little. Jonah has a lot. You have a lot. You got all of it. You got the word of the Lord in your hands, on your iPad, on that app. You can buy it for a dollar at the dollar store, and if you don't have a dollar, we'll give you one at the guest center today. They have very little. Jonah, you have very much. These are people that have pervasive, continual, familial sins that have been passed down over and over and over again. These people don't have a synagogue. They don't have a people. They don't have any history of national revival and turning to God. They don't, they don't have any of that. Their dads and their granddads and their great-granddads and their grandmas and everybody else were teaching them how to carve people alive and be violent and crazy. Jonah at least has some national history that is spiritual in nature. Most of you in this room, just by nature of being American, probably have some connection to church or a religious upbringing or some sort of background or an aunt or an uncle or grandma or somebody that want to influence you spiritually and pray for you. These are people that have no guarantee that God will actually change his mind and not judge us. You have a New Testament promise in 1 John 
That if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So you, you see the contrast. People, little word, much word. People with so much history that stand so, I mean, Frank, the, the statistics on them turning to God are so minuscule just because of their history. They have that. You have religious background probably. They have no guarantee God will turn and God will spare them. You have a New Testament promise that he will forgive your sins and cleanse you. And this is meant to show they turned. They repented in faith. They turned to God and said, God, we agree you are right. We are wrong. We feel that inside of ourselves. And we are going to repent and turn our ways. What's your excuse? What's my excuse? This is meant to show how in the world could they do this and we not? How in the world could we know the heart of God, could we know the love of Jesus, that he dies for us, that he redeems us, that he wants us to live for him, for him, and we still feel the Holy Spirit of God pricking us and prodding us, wanting to change us, wanting to cut us, but we resist and we resist and we resist. How? This is meant to show you yourself and to see that when God illuminates your heart with his word and he convicts you and he hopefully brings you to a point where you begin to feel that and you should turn in faith to him knowing that I can't change myself, it's not my own willpower, but I turn to him and I say, Lord, I want to lay down. I want to give it up. I want you to change me. I want you to prune me. I want you to, to cut away what's doing damage in my life. And this sentence to Nineveh produces a, a spiritual surgery on these people's hearts that God uses in just a matter of, of a few hours to revolutionize and, re, and revival breaks out inside of this city. It wouldn't be fitting if we just left it hanging there. What happened? And then verse number 10 is the end of the story for Nineveh at least. God saw their works, that they turned from their evil way. So they repented. And God repented of the evil that he had said that he would do unto them, and he did it not. Now understand, repentance in the Bible does not mean change from bad behavior to good behavior. It literally means that I'm making a decision to act otherwise that I'm choosing a different course of action. And God's sentence on Nineveh was conditional, as Jonah very well knew. This is why he didn't want to go, because he knew it was conditional. This is also enunciated, if you want to read further on your own, in Jeremiah 18, where God gives his decrees as he talks to other nations and how he'll handle them if they do repent. So this is, this is not, God's immutable, he does not change. This is not God changing. This is God giving a warning to some people so that they can change. And they do. And the Bible says that God in his mercy and in his grace, he decides. No longer is there judgment. Flip the hourglass back over. Stop the countdown timer. This is done. I am going to give you grace. I'm going to give you mercy because of the change that's been brought about. So this for you and your understanding of this process is paramount as a Christian. And it's twofold. First, if God has been working your heart and he's been pricking you and prodding you, and I don't know what that is. Jonah gives them five words and they get all this conviction that doesn't really happen from Jonah, it happens from God. 
It could be that I haven't touched on anything that's related to your sin, but you know it, the Spirit of God knows it, and he's, he's been stabbing at you. If that's the case, respond. When I say respond, I mean agree with him, lay it down, turn from it, and repent in faith and ask him to help you moving forward. This is also essential because if you're not in that boat right now, you are designed to be in that boat from time to time in your Christian journey. This is how he shapes you to bring forth good works. This is how he prunes you to bear more fruit. Sometimes it feels like he crushes you in order that you can have joy and rejoice. But this process is designed to happen over and over and over again so that you can be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. So that you can reach a point, go from spiritual death to spiritual life if you've never been saved. So that you can go from spiritual immaturity to spiritual maturity. How? Through God doing surgery on you. Through God illuminating your heart with his word, convicting your heart, bringing about some godly sorrow, bringing about some heaviness inside of you. And then by faith you repent and you turn to the Lord.